Hope series uh, over Paul's two letters to the uh, Thessalonian church. Uh, we will be here. We've been in here for quite a while. And I think we still got quite a bit more to go, but uh, I'm going to kind of catch you up as quickly as possible. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, but Paul established this church in one of his missionary journeys, uh, and he was only in Thessalonica where he established his church for three weeks because he was ran out of town because he was preaching the gospel and it was changing lives and they didn't like it. Uh, but in that three weeks, he had a serious impact on this church because this church became a very vibrant and dedicated and passionate church. It was actually more effective than some of the churches that had been established uh, you know, considerably longer uh, than this one. So uh, he really had an impact on them. And because of that, he wanted to continue to invest in their spiritual growth. And that's exactly what he did through these two letters. Now, um, uh, he would praise them. He, was, he really praised them, for, and he tried to uh, prepare them and encourage them. Those are the three things he was really trying to do. And he praised them for their faithfulness because they had been faithful through a lot of, uh, of persecution, a lot of trials, uh, and he uh, encouraged them to keep up the good work. But then he was preparing them, which is the under, kind of the underlying story through these two letters. He was preparing them for the return of Jesus Christ because he really believed that was going to happen any day. Uh, now, last week, Paul was teaching uh, his readers them some important end-time details, uh, and we also discussed kind of a timeline uh, for the end of time uh, that we got from Daniel chapter 9 in the 70-week prophecy. Uh, and Daniel gave some great insights as to the role of the Antichrist and what he would be doing during that time. Uh, but this week, we're going to discuss a little bit more, even more of that from Paul and from Daniel. Uh, and I titled the message, The Rise and Fall of Evil, because that's exactly what's going to happen during this seven-year tribulation period. Um, power, uh, evil's going to come to power, and it's going to be defeated during that seven, uh, 70th week. Okay, there we go. Caught up. Now we're going to jump in today. We're going to start off with Daniel chapter 9. We're going to go back and get a little bit more from him. So it says, Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This was the crucifixion. We discussed that last week. Uh, and the people of the prince who is to come. We, last week we discovered that was Rome or the Romans. Uh, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's talking about Titus when he destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And, and its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war, desolations are determined. So there's some really important key words in these verses we didn't get to cover last week, and I want to make sure we cover them this week, uh, starting with the word its, that's found in it when it says its end will come with a flood. What does that mean? What is its referring to? And we find the answer back in verse 25. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, so that was from the decree that was issued by Artaxerxes, and then all the way up to Messiah the Prince. That's when Jesus came in, his triumphal entry. Uh, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So its end is referring back to the context of verse 25, which is Jerusalem, and more specifically, the destruction of Jerusalem was the context of verse 25. So that's when it says its end. It's talking about Jerusalem, okay? And verse 26 and 27 just kind of continues that same uh, topic about Jerusalem's destruction. Uh, now, Daniel said it kind of strangely. He said, he said, and its end will come with a flood. Its end will come with a flood. Now, this is not a, a literal flood. This isn't talking about flood waters, okay? Actually, in the Hebrew, this word is better translated overflowing. So it should read that its end will be overflowing. And that's referring to the massive destruction that Titus was going to bring in 70 AD when he destroyed the temple. Uh, it was, you know, it was talking about that, but we're also going to find that there's a lot more uh, destruction that's going to happen in Jerusalem before the Lord returns. There's a, there's a lot of it. Gonna, they're going to experience all kinds of issues uh, until the Lord returns. Now, again, nobody knows exactly when the rapture is coming. No one knows that. 
we are in that church age, that time between the 69th and 70th week. And in this time frame is when we're trying to win people to the Lord and get people, enlarge the borders of the kingdom. But no one knows exactly when it's going to end. I mean, it's just, just the Bible doesn't tell us. And there's a good reason, because if we knew, we'd probably be lazy until a week before that time. That's probably what we do. So, I mean, it doesn't tell us exactly when that's going to happen, but we do know that when the rapture happens, it kicks off the 70th week, the 70th week or the tribulation period. Now, we also know that shortly after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant. Let's look at this, 927 in Daniel. It says, And he, being the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he will put, to, uh, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Um, and on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, the one, or one that is decreed is poured out on the ones who make desolate. Now, there's a lot in there. I'm not going to cover all that because I'm not preaching Daniel, <laughs> but there's a lot in there that refers back to what we're studying here. So after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to rise to power, and he's going to rise to power on the, on the false assumption that he's bringing peace and that he's a peace-loving man. And so shortly after the rapture, he's going to create this covenant of peace that's even going to bring peace in the Middle East. So between the Jews and the Muslims, there's going to be peace. And we know that, that he's even going to reinstitute the Mosaic uh, sacrifices and offerings. And we know that because we see that when he, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he takes it away. So he can't take it away if he didn't reinstitute it. So he's going to reinstitute that. Uh, so for this one seven-year period, this one week, remember week means seven uh, in the Hebrew, uh, he's going to take over and in the beginning be friendly and pull everybody in and deceive everybody. And at the midpoint, he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And it's going to get really, really, really difficult because at the midpoint, all the niceties go away. He's going to set himself up in the temple and he's going to say, I am God. And you can only worship me and me alone. And this is where we get to cover some things you guys might be hearing now. Um, but all the people during that time frame who believe are going to be hunted down and they're going to be killed. But no one will be able to buy or sell during that second, you know, three and a half years unless they take the mark of the beast. Now, there's so much misconception about the mark of the beast. I've heard people try to apply the mark of the beast to all kinds of things. Uh, credit cards. I mean, seriously, I guess I, guess I get it, because they can be a beast on you if you use them too much, but um, I've heard them talk about it in credit cards, and then I don't know if you guys remember when they talked about getting microchips in your hand to pay for things, and everybody's like, oh, that's how they're going to sneak the mark of the beast on us, and I'm like, listen, it's not going to be a surprise. They're not going to sneak it in on you. When they accept the mark of the beast, it'll be during the tribulation period, and they will know exactly what they're doing. It's not something the government sneaks in your cereal box and your kids' toys. That's not what it is you actually will know that he is claiming to be God, and if you do not take his mark, you can't buy or trade or sell or have any commerce. So it's going to be something we willingly take. No one's going to sneak it in on you. So no, it's not the vaccination. No, it's not credit cards. No, it's not the microchip in people's hand. It's not any of that stuff. It will be something that people know full well what they're doing when they take it because he's going to demand it, and they'll just realize if we don't take it, we don't eat, basically. It's pretty much what it's going to be. Now, it's going to appear at that time to everybody, you know, to the bystander, they're going to go, man, maybe, maybe Satan wins. Because here he's going to be in complete control of the world. He's going to be in charge of everything. And he's going to be demanding that people worship him. So it's going to look like he's won. But we know better. We know what's coming, right? And so that's why it's so important to know these things, right? Because I, I, I don't understand 100% why people get so worried about it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't get that, because 
here's the way I see it. We know we win. Why do we worry about what's going to happen in, in the future? Why do we worry about, you know, what's going to happen during the tribulation period? Yes, it's going to be tough. I, I'll give you that. But you know the bonus of being saved? We don't have to worry about that. And this sounds selfish as heck, but I think it's okay to be selfish in this aspect. I'm glad I'm not going to be here. Aren't you? I mean, I don't feel selfish saying that. You know, I accepted Jesus. He gave me eternal life. I don't deserve it. I never will deserve it. But I'll tell you this much. I'm thankful I'm not going to be a part of that mess. Aren't you? I mean, we're just not going to be there. We know that he wins. We know that. And I, that should excite people. People should get excited about that. Now, let's move along. We'll go, go back to our main text, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, Then that lawless one, which is referring to, you can answer that, Antichrist. All right, it's going to be referring to the Antichrist. That lawless one will be revealed, uh, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. That's important. Uh, and bring to an end uh, by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming in accord, uh, in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That's also important. Verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now that's a mouthful. So in the first sentence, Paul, it's really cool. In one sentence, he pretty much summarizes the rise and fall of the Antichrist and his servants. In one sentence. He just kind of summarizes the whole thing. Basically, he said that the Antichrist will deceive the world until the second coming. That's basically what that sentence says, and it's true. Uh, and the Bible tells us, you know, that he's going to perform these supernatural signs and wonders. He's going to have the ability to do these supernatural things and, and do these great miracles and signs, and he's going to use that supernatural ability to continue to persuade people to believe he's God. He's going to use that. Now, some people get all jacked up about this, but listen, Satan does have power. He's powerful. He's more powerful than us. Nobody here can defeat him. The only way we defeat him is through Jesus. But he is powerful, and he does have the ability to do supernatural things, and to, he can even bless people who follow him. Remember when the, Jesus, when he took Jesus during the temptation to a high mountain, and he said, see all the kingdoms of the world, all these I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus didn't say, you can't do that. He didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, you're offering something you can't deliver. No, he just said, listen, I'm not going to do that. Get behind me. I only worship God. But that tells you he has the ability to bless, and he will have these supernatural signs and wonders, and he's going to deceive people with that. And that's actually pretty easy because, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the world is really fascinated with the supernatural. Have you noticed that? Let's, let's do a test here. How many people here have ever watched Ghost Hunters? Raise your hand. Be honest. It's okay. See, that's what I thought. There's a lot of people who's watched it. You know, there, we have this interest in the supernatural. That's why horoscopes are so popular. I wouldn't mess with those, but they're popular. That's why psychics and mediums are so, are so popular, and ghost stories and movies about ghosts and entities. And we are interested in the supernatural. Everyone is interested in that, right? And the enemy loves that. He loves it. You know, people ask me all the time, well, what do you do with the people that say they saw something? I believe they saw something. Listen, it's pretty simple. If, if, you're the, if you're the enemy, if you're the devil, and you have the ability to do supernatural things, and he does even now, and people want to see a vision of their, you know, their great aunt who they love so much as a child, if showing them that vision will keep them interested in the occult and keep them interested in Ouija boards and all that craziness, he'll let them see that. But listen, there's no such thing as ghosts. I know I hate to ruin that for everybody here, but there's no such thing as ghosts. Now, are there demons? Yes, there are demons. If you're seeing something... If there's only two sources it could come from. It's either coming from God or it's coming from the other team. You know what I mean? And so if, it's, if, you're, if you're seeing it while you're uh, involved in these occultic practices, it's from the enemy. Okay, so it's really important you understand that. 
right? So people have always been interested in that, so it's the perfect setup for him. He's going to come in, and people love the supernatural, and he's going to probably heal people. He's going to probably, you know, fix things like the relationship between the Muslims and the Jews. He's going to do miracles no one else can do, and that's going to help him sell uh, the fact that he should be the leader and that he's the, he's the one everybody should be following. So I think it's, it's kind of crazy that it's actually, it, you know, right now we're actually making it easy for him by following all that junk, right? Now, but despite all the supernatural abilities, he could have all the supernatural abilities in the world, but none of them are going to save him from Jesus. Okay, he may do all these powerful things and he might deceive us. He might be able to defeat humanity, but he can't defeat Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, or the second coming, this is not the rapture, this is the second coming. When he returns, he's bringing victory with him. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit, and it is powerful. Because when he comes back, I think even the devil's going to look and go, time's up, I'm about to get whooped. I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, he knows he's going to lose. And when that time comes, he's done. Now, Paul said he would slay the enemy with the breath of his mouth. Now, that doesn't mean he has bad breath. A lot of people have asked me about that. I'm like, no, he probably brushes his teeth or doesn't need to, one or the other. But it's, that's not what it's talking about. Okay? Jesus and the armies of heaven are going to slaughter all the enemies of God. All the enemies at the end of that tribulation period. There's going to be a great battle. And this battle has been talked about. There's been movies made about it. Most of it is ridiculously off context and not correct. But this battle is called the Battle of, anybody got a guess? Armageddon. It's the Battle of Armageddon. It has nothing to do with the movie, FYI. But that's when that great battle is going to happen. And that happens after the 70th week or after the seven-year tribulation period and before the millennial kingdom. Right now, I wish I had more time to go into this, but after the seven-year tribulation period ends, there's going to have this huge war, and that's when we enter into that thousand-year kingdom. The only people who will survive that war are believers, and they will be the ones entering into this millennial kingdom. But one thing's for sure, he's going to defeat the armies of this world when he comes back. He's just going to lay them waste. Now, in Revelation 19, John the Revelator explains this battle in greater detail. And, I mean, it is so hard when I'm preparing these messages because as I'm using these reference passages, everything in my soul wants me to preach on those passages. You know what I mean? There's so much there, but I, I can't really spend a lot of time in them. But Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Who do you think that is? That's Jesus, right? Notice the capital letters. Uh, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. Uh, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. That's important. His name is called the Word of God. Uh, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. People have asked me before, why would they go to war wearing white? Why would they go to war? Why would they come in white? Why not camo? Right? Why not olive drab? You know, why? Well, because they're not going to have to do anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's going to come in and speak the words and destroy the enemy. And I don't think they're going to get a spot of blood on them. <laughs> I just think it's going to be that quick and that swift. Uh, so they come in these white and clean robes signifying that they've been cleansed uh, through Jesus. Uh, and they were following him on white horses. Verse 15. Uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Okay, that's talking about the millennial kingdom. Uh, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is so powerful. Because, you know, this is just the way my mind works. Okay, so I'm going to take you down the dark regions of my mind. But... 
I see this battle like John Wickish. I really do. That's how I, I just, I'd love to see Jesus come back and just kick the door open and go, yeah, you might have crucified the lamb, but the lions come today. The lion's here today. No more lamb. That's over. Now it's me and you. I just love to see that. In my mind, I just, I have this whole action movie written. I need to write it. You know what I mean? You know, or Jesus is the John Wick, except, you know, not as gross. Anyway, so it's really interesting the way this is written because Paul and John the Revelator both reference Jesus' mouth being his main weapon. And people notice that, you know, with the breath of his mouth, you know. Uh, and there's a reference here to the word of God being his instrument of war. Right? That's what, he's, that's what he's battling with is the Word of God. The Word of God is referred to several times in the Bible as a weapon. And I'll explain that. If you look, I'm just going to mention one of them. Look at Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let's look at this again. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than what? Any two-edged sword, Right? Okay, so the reason it's considered a weapon is because there's no defense against the truth. There's no defense against the truth. The truth is the truth. And the Word of God is always completely true. And the reason it reveals everything is because the truth has a way of doing that. You know, we hide things with our deceptions and lies. That's what deception and lies are for, to hide things, to deceive people. But the truth is pure and powerful, and it reveals everything, and it makes everything known. And that's why it's considered uh, such an amazing weapon. There's no defense against the Word of God, right? And actually, even the phrase, the Word of God, should explain why the Bible is so powerful. It should, it should explain that, okay? Because the Word, here's the thing people forget. The Bible is, isn't just like any other book. It's not a novel, right? It's not even written in chronological order. I don't know if you knew that. It's not even written in chronological order. Job was actually the first book written, right? But what it is, is God sending us a letter telling us about his thoughts and his desires and telling us about his commands and giving us directions. It is a letter from God to man. It's personal. I love that. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it is. Now, I love in 1 Timothy, Paul, again, talks about, an, uh, about the Word of God, and he takes time to kind of explain its power. So if you look at this, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, now, when you break this down in the Greek, and I, I don't do this a lot, but I'm going to break this entire sentence down in the Greek because the Greek rendering makes this a lot more understandable. It kind of clears it up. In the Greek, that statement is pas grafe theopneustos, and what it means is pas means all, right? Pas means all. Grafe is writing or scriptures. So everything written is what he's saying up to this point, all writings right, in the scriptures, uh, and theopneustos means breathed out of God, or God breathed, so in the Greek, it's totally different, in the Greek, it's saying that the word of God is powerful because it's breathed out of the mouth of God, I just think that is, that is so powerful, he's, he's basically saying God breathed his words into every letter of the Bible, it's all from him, and I think that is so, so powerful, now, Peter talked about this, too, in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 20. He said, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke, what? From God. 
Everything you see in the Bible, when you hear people make that statement, well, the Bible is just, you know, man's opinion. Incorrect. It is not man's opinion. And also you hear people say, well, that's a matter of interpretation. No, there is no two interpretations. That's, that's the beautiful thing about the Bible. There's one interpretation. You may not understand it yet, but there's just one. It's a very black and white document, right? God wants us to understand it, but he wanted us to make sure we understood that the word of God is from God. He just used men like the tool or the pen that he wrote with. That's all that means, right? So when the enemy faces Jesus in that great battle, he doesn't stand a chance because he's going to be battling the Son of God who's bringing the Word of God, and there's no defense. He has no chance of winning. Now, understand this. The enemy has known from day one he's going to lose. Okay, He never thought that he would really win. People always say he thought he was going to win. I don't think he's stupid, you know? He did get tossed out of heaven by the seat of his pants. You know, so it's not like he thinks he can actually defeat God. If he could have, he probably would have tried to do it then. He knew this time was coming when he was going to lose. But misery loves company, and he wanted to take as many people with him as he could. That was his goal. God loves people and wants to bring them into heaven with him, and the enemy hates God and wants to keep people from going there. It's really simple. He knew this day was coming. And there's nothing he could do to deceive it out of happening or malign the truth to make it not happen. It's going to happen. And he knows that. And he knows he's going to lose. So I want you to think about this. When we pick up our Bibles, and I feel like that's dying in Christianity. I don't think people read like they used to. I mean, I believe you should read every day. Now, I'm not saying you have to read, you know, 12 books a day. But make, make a, a commitment to at least read one passage a day, one scripture. It could even be Jesus wept if you want. Just something. Right? Because here's the deal. It's from God. And sometimes whatever passage you pick up, God will use that to whisper in your ear. And there are times when I sat down dead tired and I said, I'm just going to read this one verse because I said I would. All the wrong motives. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I was tired. You know, I was doing something spiritual before that, like, you know, watching a football game. And then I get too tired to read the Word of God because I, you know, burn all my energy watching football. And so I would try to read one passage and then it would end up being... Sometimes I'd end up reading a couple books. God just started really speaking to me. And then there's times I'd read one passage and that was it. But you should give him a chance to speak every day because think about this. When you pick up the word of God, you're not only picking up a document that was breathed out of the mouth of God, you are picking up the most powerful weapon ever forged. This is actually the weapon that Jesus will use to defeat the enemy and you have access to it. The weapon that can defeat the enemy ultimately and will defeat the enemy is the word of God. So I don't understand why we're not reading it. I mean, if it's that powerful, if that's what's going to end the reign of the enemy, why wouldn't we want to read that? Why wouldn't we want to know that to have personal victory in our own life from it? I mean, one of the things you see about the scriptures when you study the end times is it's the scriptures that, that explain everything. It's the scriptures that, that tell us how things happen and what to look for and what to avoid. The end of time isn't so scary when you have a map that tells you how to avoid it. You know what I mean? But we just don't read. I don't understand that. Now, let's move on. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. He says, For this reason, God will send upon them what? You can say that loud if you'd like to. <laughs> Easy. I don't want the decibels to get too loud. Anybody getting hurt up in here? He will send upon them a deluding influence. All right, I can't wait to talk about that. So that they will believe what is false. Verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but pay attention to this, if you're following along your Bible, underscore this, but took pleasure in wickedness. 
but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, so Paul explains that the Antichrist is going to deceive people, and he actually explains how he's going to deceive people and how he's going to control people. During the tribulation, God will allow certain groups to be deceived. He's going to allow that to happen. And people hear that and they think, oh, well, that's not fair. God's not giving them a chance. God gives everybody a chance. Why would he turn them over to a spirit of delusion or a deluding influence? Why would he do that? We'll look at that. So he's going to send this deluding influence. And in the the Greek, it's something totally different. In the Greek, it's the word plene. And plene means to cause to wander off the path. Okay, so basically God's going to allow them to fall victim to their own depravity, to their own denial to their own rejection he's going to say you want it let's see where that ends i'm going to give you that deluding spirit so that that's what you believe that's what you've wanted all this time so that's what it is so the bible doesn't specifically tell us what that delusion will be but they will be deluded and they won't believe and and paul reveals that there's only one group of people that are going to be that are going to be affected by that uh that strong delusion and it's going to be all the people who did not believe the truth listen but had pleasure in, righteous, in unrighteousness. You see what I mean? He defines which group that will be. He's saying the ones who will be deceived with this deluded uh, or strong delusion are those who, before the rapture and into the, uh, into the tribulation period, have taken pleasure in rejecting God. Now, the Jews took pleasure in that for a long time, right? I mean, they crucified the Messiah and were happy about it, right? And so, yes, it includes the Jews, but it's not just them. It's anyone who, during that time who spent their whole life joyfully rejecting God and his mercy. Those are the people that he's going to turn over to a deluding spirit. He's going to let them be strongly influenced by that delusion. Why? Because they're not going to believe anyway, right? And so he's going to allow them to fall victim to their own evil desires. That's what he's saying. You love unrighteousness? Okay, well, love it now because you're going to see what, ha- what happens at the end. You're going to find out how that pays off in the end. So that's the people, so a lot of people have asked me, is that, a lot of people think no one will be saved in the tribulation because of that topic, because of that verse. It's not talking about every person. It's only those who took pleasure in unrighteousness and rejecting God. That's the ones that are going to have that deluding spirit uh, sent, on, sent on them. It doesn't apply to everybody else. You know, those people who have never heard or rejected the gospel or didn't understand the gospel, perhaps, those people will hear it and they still will have the opportunity to, to believe. They'll still have that opportunity. But sadly, like we've said before, when you believe during the tribulation period, it's going to come at dire consequences. I mean, you talk about having strong faith. When you're willing to believe, knowing that the second you do, the Antichrist is going to put you on the hit list. And they're going to start hunting you down and trying to kill you and trying to eradicate everyone like you. That's the price of believing during the tribulation period. I had a young man tell me one time, and he'd been raised in church. Sometimes that's I mean, it's good, don't take me wrong. But sometimes kids want to rebel against what they were raised against. Probably none of you guys know anything about that. But, you know, I had a kid one time say, well, if you can believe during the rapture, then I'll just wait till then. I'm like, that's stupid on so many levels. Where to begin? First of all, who says you're going to live till then? You're all worried about what the time of the end of time is and when the rapture is going to happen. Hey, I got a I got a newsflash for you. You can go out and get in your car and some drunk cross the center line and your end of time is today, right? And then waiting to believe will cost you, right? And here's the thing I always tell people. If you don't have the guts to believe now when it's 
free and there's nobody going to chase you down and kill you in this country for it. If you can't believe now when God's saying anyone who will come and it's simple and he forgets who people think you are or what your reputation is, he forgets all that and openly welcomes you right now. He doesn't care what you're struggling with, what you have struggled with. If you won't do it now, do you really think when they're threatening to kill people, not letting you buy food, not letting you have any commerce, do you really think you're going to believe you're going to get bold all of a sudden? When you won't do it now? See, I think that's a really bad plan on a lot of levels, don't you? I mean, first of all, I, and the most important of those levels are, you may not make it to that time. You might die before then. Who knows? Right? Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus addresses just how dire these circumstances will be during this tribulation period. Now, Matthew 24, a lot of people misunderstand this, and I want to clarify this. Matthew 24 is, is talking about future events. Okay, so a lot of doctrine that's built on that is wrong because people try to apply it like it's talking about right now. It isn't. Okay, listen to this, 2415. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is the Antichrist. We just talked about that. Verse 16. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This is talking about believers, those who have believed during that time frame, mostly Jews. Uh, verse 17, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days because they're going to be on the run. That's what that's talking about. It's not going to be a curse to be pregnant. It's just saying that those who believe and have, are pregnant or have, have a newborn will be running with them. Verse 20, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Okay, so this is talking about the tribulation. He's saying this is the worst it's ever going to be. The worst it's ever been is what's going to happen during that time frame. Verse 22 says, Unless those days uh, had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So what he's saying is if, the, if there's only seven years in the tribulation period. If it weren't seven years, the enemy would utterly wipe out everybody and everything. God's grace is making it only last seven years, just long enough to turn Israel back to him, right? Uh, verse 23, then if anyone says, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Uh, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, I love this passage. To mislead, if possible, even the elect. People ask me, why isn't it possible? Because the elect will be gone. Okay, they're going to be raptured out of here. He won't be able to deceive them because they're not going to be here. Okay, verse 25. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So basically, Jesus said, all who believe during the 70th week are going to be hunted like dogs. That's basically it. They're going to be hunted down like an animal, right? And he's going to be chasing everyone who believes, trying to destroy them and trying to get rid of them. That's what's going to happen. So it's going to be a great price to pay. Now, a lot of people ask me, and I've been asked this many times, so I want to address this before I close. A lot of people have asked me, why was that so important? Why did Paul spend so much time referring to all these passages in the Old Testament, talking about the return of Christ? They were already saved. Why was that so important? 
And that is a good question. And it's, I've had people ask me today, why is it important to preach that? I've even had people tell me to avoid it. But I'm not in the business of avoiding any scripture. So if it comes up, we're going to preach it. But I've had people say that to me. So I want to answer that question. It's important for believers to know, and Paul knew this. This is what he was trying to get through to the Thessalonians. It's important for believers to know that our time here is limited. Okay, our time here is limited. And I don't care how much medicine advances, if it is. I don't know how much, you know, I don't care how much, you know, better we get scientifically and how much more we learn. We are only here for a limited amount of time. And that day is set. Okay, people act like God's just going to get up one day and stretch and go, I think I'm going to end the world. That's not how it works. The time is set. When he was creating us, he knew when the last day was. So every day we're getting closer to it. So today we're closer to the end than we were yesterday. The time has been set. Our time here is limited. So since our time here is limited, we shouldn't waste it. And I feel like we're wasting it. You know, if Jesus could still return any time, Paul was right. There was nothing left to happen in Paul's day. The next thing on the theological timescale was Jesus coming back and rapturing the church. And that's still the case now. It's still the case. He could still come any day. So why are we wasting time arguing about stupid stuff? uh, Every time I scroll through Facebook, I want to punch myself. Because uh, that's why you don't see me post anything but scripture, because I can't take it. I mean, first of all, people post things that nobody cares about, like what you're eating. FYI, nobody cares. Okay? Look, a steak. Nice. Seen one before. Scroll. Anyway. But I see people on there arguing and bickering and Christians fighting about doctrine and theology. And I see, I see people battling about, about whether it be vax or anti-vax or whether it be politics or whether it be sports, whatever. People arguing and fighting and getting involved in stuff that means nothing. It means nothing. So what if you win that argument? I mean, do you get a prize for that? You know? I mean, we argue over stuff that means nothing. When we could be using that same time and that same energy to influence people's life for Jesus. We could be witnessing to people. We could be trying to show people God's love and reminding people that he doesn't care what they've come from or what they've done. He just cares about what they can be and where they're going. That's all he cares about. We have the time to do that. The whole reason I coach is to have the ability to influence young lives. The whole reason some people are teachers is so that they can have the ability to, you know, influence young lives. Wherever you work, whatever you do, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can influence lives. You could... The words you share from the Bible, remember, they're powerful. That's what's going to defeat the enemy. You have the power and the capability to change someone's eternal destiny. And you want to fight on Facebook about what color the horses are in Revelation? Seriously? You want to fight about some stupid virus? Listen, we got a virus that can't be cured. It's called sin, and it's going to kill everybody. So we need to give them the solution, the cure. And the cure is Jesus. And we have a limited amount of time to administer that cure. Because the moment he returns, it ends. This is our time. We shouldn't be wasting it. The whole reason Paul preached this was he wanted them to know, you don't have time to get tied up in all the religion and ridiculous stuff that destroyed the Jews. He could be back tomorrow. Use your time wisely. Because this is what's going to happen to people during that time frame. You've got to help them escape it. That was the whole purpose of this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. We have a lot more to cover. But if you would, please bow your heads. We always like to give an invitation. If this is your first time, 
We always give an invitation because we believe the Word of God's powerful. And it doesn't matter which of the 66 books it comes from, it's all powerful. And I've had people come to Christ, literally, when I've been preaching through Daniel, when I've been preaching through Hebrews, a word in that spoke to them. It wasn't me, it was something in that. So whenever I preach, I always want to give people the opportunity. So while every head's about, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, or just needs prayer, you're struggling in your faith. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down. I really pray for those people, just so you know. Bless those people. If you're watching online or listening online, I got you. God knows your heart. But believers, I want us to take from this the same thing Paul hoped his readers would take. You know, use the energy that you use to bicker and argue. Use the pride that you have in your denomination and shift it. Shift that energy and that pride to the love of Christ and sharing his word while we have time. Because it could be over tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. I just thank you, Lord, that you love us, even though we don't deserve it. There is nothing I've done in my life that makes me worthy of heaven. Everything I've done has proved that we needed Jesus. To this day, every day I sin. Every day I prove why we need Jesus. And I'm just so thankful that your love for us is more powerful than our sin. I'm so thankful that you don't care what we've done, what people think about us, what our reputation is. You care about what we believe. And if we can believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, your word promises we'll have it. So if there's someone that's confused about that, God, please clear it up. May this word clear it up for them. And I pray that they just trust that. And if they do, we know they're going to be a part of this family. We pray they contact us. And God, for those of us who are believers, the enemy is throwing so many things out there for us to fight and argue about. So many things to cause division. And it's so easy to get caught up in it, Lord. But please, let us be caught up in one thing and one thing only. And that's your love. And sharing your love with anyone we can. We know the time could end tomorrow. Let us be found sharing the gospel when you return. And enlarging the borders of your kingdom. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. And we pray that you go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.